Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. In this episode, we're sharing a keynote talk titled, From the Why to the How, Operationalizing Equity and Collective Impact, by Professor John Powell, who serves as Director of the Othering and Belonging Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. Following the talk, Michael McAfee, President and CEO of PolicyLink, joins Professor Powell in a discussion about what's needed to prioritize equity within collective impact work. Introducing the keynote is Collective Impact Forum co-lead Sherry Brady of the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. This talk was held on May 14, 2019 at the 2019 Collective Impact Convening in Chicago. I'm Sherry Brady from the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solution, and we at Aspen are pleased to be in partnership with FSG as co-leaders and conveners of the Collective Impact Forum. I want to give out a shout out to my Aspen colleagues who are in attendance, Steve Patrick, Monique Miles, and Jamie McAuliffe, I think is somewhere in the room, but I can't see him. Um, so welcome, um, and thank you for being here to support us. Um, what an amazing journey um, collect the Collective Impact Forum has been on since its formation. I am especially proud of the work we have done to increase focus on engaging those with lived experience as a part of collective impact. How we have increased the conversation activities around focusing on equity, which is one of, as our speakers has written about, the soul of collective impact. These issues are core to the mission of the Aspen Forum for Community Solutions, and um, which is about strengthening and supporting and highlighting the great work that is happening in communities. So I just want to again say thank you um, for being here on that. Collective impact as an approach can be a really powerful tool for changing systems and structures that often, um, excuse me, that often disadvantage communities of color. But when you do not focus on racial equity, there is a good chance that the collective impact initiatives can reinforce the disadvantages of marginalized people of color and marginalized populations. Focusing on racial equity provides the opportunity to introduce a framework, tools and resources that can be applied to other areas of marginalization. We began our dive into focusing on equity and collective impact by focusing on racial equity because this inequity is so baked into many of our institutions and structures that we confront with collective impact efforts. And we will con this will continue to be a vital part of the conversation as we move forward and as we continue to do this work. During this week, we will also focus on other communities affected by inequity, including the disability community, sexual, those sexual orientation, gender, class, ethnicity, religion, and more as a part of our conversation here. I don't know how many of you here were last year. I did a little dance review. I'm not going to treat you to a dance today. I'm trying to contain myself. But I can't think of a better way to get us started than the speakers we have today. We will have a keynote presentation, followed by a bit of table talk to do some processing and thinking about what the concepts that you will hear. And then we will have a discussion that focuses on what it takes to prioritize equity and collective impact, getting to the how-to of what we want to do. So I am honored and I feel privileged to be able to introduce our keynote speaker, Professor John A. Powell. An international, that's right, give it up. We're gonna clap at the end, but give it up, give it up. <clears throat> An internationally recognized expert in the areas of civil rights and liberties, structural racism, housing, poverty, and democracy. He currently serves as the director of the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at UC Berkeley. My alma mater is go Bears. Um, <laughs> Professor Powell. <clears throat> We'll begin by sharing some keynote remarks on his work on targeted universalism and othering and belonging. With belonging, excuse me. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming John Powell to the stage. Good afternoon. 
So there are a lot of y'all here. Um, so I'm going to be talking to you about uh, othering and belonging. And first of all, let me just get a sense. Did any of you come to the Othering and Belonging conference we just had in Oakland? I did. All right. Um, next time, more of you have to go to, woo, you know, that's the right, right response. Um, so I'm going to be actually just given, for those of you who are not familiar with it, a slightly different framework, but it's a framework that's already been laid out um, by our Native uh, American brothers and sisters and by the poet we just heard from. Uh, it's about belonging. And the opposite of belonging, which we do a lot, is othering. Um, so how do we address that? And how does it relate to both equity and targeting universalism? So that's what I'm going to be talking about. Let's see if this works. So this, if you'll recognize this riff on W.B. Du Bois, I'm suggesting that the problem of the 21st century is the problem of othering. Uh, Sherry mentioned that um, in the United States, race is critical in terms of how we frame and how we learn about othering. Not the only way, obviously, LGBTQ, disability, gender. Um, but the problem in the United States is cooked in around race in a very serious way. It not only affects people of color, and particularly African Americans, it affects whites, it affects the way we organize our structures and institutions, it affects our culture. Um, and we're seeing this process of saying, you don't belong, you're other, not just happen in the United States, but happening all around the world. But as it happens around the world, it sometimes takes on a different lens. So in India, it might be religion. In France, it might be um, nationality. Uh, but we're seeing this process of othering actually rapidly move around the world, uh, oftentimes expressed in terms of authoritarian nationalism. Uh, and it's actually quite, uh, quite concerning. Um, so first of all, the name of our institute is the Haas Institute for a Fair an inclusive society. Um, let me just, so I get a little energy in the room, let me just hear you say, Haas Institute for Fair and Inclusive Society. Institute for Fair and Inclusive Society. Okay, now that you said that, we're changing our name. <laughs> uh, and we are changing our name, and the question is why? We've been around, I'm the founding director, why are we changing our name? Um, so part of it is that the way we think about inclusive, uh, or the way most people think about inclusive, is you're joining something, and that something is there. So you show up sort of as a guest, as a um, uh, interloper in some way. You can join my law firm, you can join my school, you can join my collective impact, but it's mine. Uh, and so you come with the norms already set out, with the rules already set out, with the structure already set out, and then you as the joiner, which is oftentimes a marginalized group, you're expected to make all the accommodations for this new thing. Uh, now this is actually a huge problem, not just in terms of um, us, but the whole world. If you think about um, early on, when women in the United States came to the workplace in large numbers, which is in the 1970s, uh, many of the men, in a crude way, had uh, sexually suggestive pornographic pictures on the wall. And what men first said is that, okay, you can come and work in our factory or whatever, but don't mess with our pictures. The structure, the culture is already set. And, and uh, it's nothing against you, we just like having nude women splattered up against the wall. And if you don't like it, you can put up your own nude pictures. I mean, this was actually a real debate that went all the way to the Supreme Court. 
now it may seem like, wow, do we really have that debate? Uh, we're, we're having that debate over and over again in terms of different populations, in terms of race, in terms of disability, in terms of religion. And each time, uh, it's like, well, if they want to come and be part of our thing, let them do the changing. So we are changing our name from inclusion to put belonging in the name. Uh, and the reason we put belonging in the name is that belonging suggests when you join something, you participate, you have the power and standing to participate in the co-creating of the thing you're joining. So you're not joining as an interloper, as a guest. It becomes your thing, it becomes our thing collectively. And so we think belonging is actually a deeper way of actually engaging with uh, uh, this process. And that if we're gonna succeed, again, what was he saying about mixing cultures out of love? Uh, if we're gonna succeed, we have to actually do it out of a sense of love, but it's all of us doing something together. It's not your thing, it's not my thing, it's our thing. Uh, and that's what's gonna be reflected in the new name. Notice, power, co-creation. So those concepts are front and center. Um, and I'm, uh, I've sort of followed Collective Impact from a distance, I'm in the Bay Area up the street from Stanford, uh, which had a big role in sort of all. And you know, to be honest, uh, when they first came and talked to me about it, it's like, yeah, you know, a bunch of smart people at Stanford, you know, and a bunch of smart, mainly white people around the country. Uh, and it's, I'm sort of pleased to see that you realize there's smart people all over the place. Some of them aren't white. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, so I'm, I'm sort of pleased when I watch you watching the evolution that you've gone through, and I know my friend Angela Glover Blackwell has talked to you before. Uh, so the idea of belonging, I think, is actually um, reflected in what you're trying to do, um, and, um, and I just want to applaud you on that effort. Um, so and again, suggesting that you might actually move to a concept of belonging. Um, now, Angela Glover Blackwell my, uh, and Manuel Pastor and myself in the early 90s we're on a, a journey together. And we're still on a journey together. I mean, Angela and I have been on a really long journey together. Uh, we went to school together. Uh, and um, uh, so it's, it's been a while, it's been a minute. Uh, but when we started on this journey in the 90s, it was to introduce equity to the larger uh, community. And I can't tell you how many meetings we got invited out of. Uh, or how many times people would say, how did they find out what we were? Uh, and, and some of those groups are still around. But the word equity has now become really baked into what people do. And as you know, equity is about, it's a platform. It's not about housing, it's not about schools, it's not about jobs, it's about the way in which we look at the world in which we do all of our work. Um, and what I wanna suggest is that the next iteration of that really is belonging. Uh, so how do we actually think about belonging? And we shouldn't have to, but we do right now, we shouldn't have to say we have guests from other countries and they're welcome. I mean, we should, that should be baked into who we are as a country, who we are as a people, that everyone's welcome. So to our friends from other countries and to our friends from this country, I wanna apologize for our government. Uh, because it doesn't, it, it, it's, its role is actually, its stance right now is about othering. It's not about belonging. Uh, and one of the reasons it's so important is because we have uh, people in high places effectively uh, with power, 
with policy, with money, saying to people more and more, you don't belong. This is not your place. This is not your country. This is not your, and things follow from that in terms of schools, in terms of money, in terms of policy. Uh, and I think we have to counter that. And we have to counter that with a real sense of belonging. Um, so the othering, as I suggested, can happen across many different areas. And sometimes it happens at an individual level. You know, we've all gone to a party and didn't get the memo, so we show up with the wrong clothes uh, or at the wrong time. Uh, everyone shows up bringing food and we, we sort of come empty-handed and we feel kind of awkward. Uh, so this is interpersonal, and it can happen on an interpersonal level. Uh, Brene Brown, some of you may know her work, she talks about being othered in your own family. Uh, um, so uh, Andrew Solomon wrote a book called Far From the Tree, talks about what happens when you don't fit into your own family. So that's very painful. Uh, but at the same time, when you're being othered by the institutions, by the government, by business, by whatever, it even has a more detrimental level. And it's not just you, it's your people, it's whoever you identify with. Um, and so othering can happen at different levels. It can happen at, at a personal level, it can happen at an institutional level. When it happens at an institutional level, it's sometimes hard to find the culprit. Uh, and so it's like, I can't get a loan from my house. Uh, who's the culprit? It's not that anyone necessarily is being mean to me. It's that the structures that are important for me to actually exist in society are not responding to me because of my association with a certain group. Um, and so these, when we other people based on their group identity, then the group responds. And sometimes when they respond, we get confused and we say, why are gays so obsessed with sex? You know, I used to have sex too, but I wasn't obsessed with it. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's why I don't have it anymore. Uh, but the thing is, if you persecute a people based on their identity, then they will fight based on their identity. Uh, and then it was like, why, why black people in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, the white progressives, like, why be black people fo focused on lynching? We got a war to fight. And part of that war includes lynching. And so there's not a, um, a tension between the whole and our identities. Uh, our identities are important because the, the, the large society use our identity to say we're not really part of the whole. We don't belong. Uh, and so uh, I just want to put that, shout, that, shout that out because a lot of times we sort of think identity politics is what's the problem. Um, and we think the way to deal with identity politics is not to see them. And so we say, you know, we don't see race. We don't see gender. We don't see disability. Now, first of all, and if I had time, uh, I could go into it in greater detail. From the work in the mind science, we know that whoever that we is is not the unconscious. The unconscious sees race, the unconscious sees gender, the unconscious sees disability. Any ascriptive uh, characteristics that we have in society, the unconscious is very conscious of it. And it affects how we see the person, how we treat the person, and how we organize resources in relationship to them. So the goal uh, is not to be blind to race, not to be blind to disability, not to be blind to those things. The goal is to actually make those things not be an indication of someone's belonging and someone's success. So one way we deal with this is through targeting universalism. Uh, 
one of the things that targeting universalism, I sometimes say, and I'll say it here, is that it's actually equity 2.0. So we have a escalator. We have a structure. The structure is doing something. And its structures always carry certain messages. They always are normalized against a particular population. But we don't notice that. So when we build an escalator, we don't notice that the escalator is made for people who are ambulatory until the person in a wheelchair shows up. And now what we could do is make the person in the wheelchair the problem. Uh, it's like, okay, give them some you know, crutches and help him or her get on the wheelchair, and they'll be clumsy. And then it's a question of how do we fix that person as opposed to how do we organize the structure to actually promote the person's positive outcomes. Uh, so structures always matter. But most of the time, they matter in a way that we don't notice. And just give you two quick examples. Um, I fly way too much. Uh, I've already hit 160,000 miles on one airline uh, in this year alone. Um, yes, yeah, way too much. It's crazy. But anyway, so I noticed this on airlines. So luggage rack on airlines. That's a structure. I say structures are normalized on one population, which means they're normalized to, to sort of injure another population. So who's the injured population in terms of luggage racks on airlines? Short people, all right. Is, is, are, there, are there any groups in our, in our society that tends to be shorter than other people? Women, okay. Now, let's play that out a little bit more. So it's, luggage racks can designed to actually disadvantage women. It's worse than that, though, not just because they're shorter than men on average, Women have less upper body strength than men. So now, not only are they shorter, they have a harder time lifting something up over their head. And here's the kicker. Women on average, now some of you may disagree with this, but women on average carry more luggage. <laughs> and a lot of women, a lot of women accommodate this problem by simply checking their luggage which means you add both an extra half an hour to your trip when you get there and the possibility that your luggage is going to be lost. Uh, now, all that's a structure that no one's paying attention to. Uh, and in fact, sometimes when people call attention to it, people say, well, you're, I mean, literally, I've been on a plane where a woman's struggling, you know, to get something up over her head, and the guy's like, well, you know, you're a feminist, so deal with it, right? <laughs> uh, not seeing that the structure itself is actually partial to men as a group. Uh, so we have to make ourselves aware of what structures are doing. Uh, so part of the thing that target universalism is about is basically saying, what's the goal we're trying to reach? The goal is what the universal is. Uh, and then we say, how do we get each group to that goal? So the universal is the goal. The strategy to get people to that goal is targeted, and it's targeted based on where people are within the structure and within the culture and any special needs that they have, or any needs that they have. They're not necessarily special. Uh, so there's nothing particularly special about the guy in a wheelchair. It's that we've designed a structure that doesn't work for him. Uh, and what we do in a society is we design a bunch of structures that are beneficial to one group and harmful or less beneficial to other groups. When we bring our attention, when we bring the, our attention to that sometimes is like, why are we focusing on women? Why are we focusing on Muslims? Why are we focusing on blacks? Uh, because we built this larger structure that really is designed for a small group of whites. Um, and they don't notice that. That structure just looks universal. 
Um, so the, the goal then is to make ourselves aware of what these structures are doing. Now one way that we can do that is through data. When you have a group that's persistently not actually functioning well, whether it's getting into Stanford, or whether it's, here's a data point that's actually, uh, right? I mean, it's like, well, first of all, I got into Stanford, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, think about this. So rich people, already rich, which says something, and then it's like, and I want my kid to go to Stanford. Someone give me a couple of million dollars. I mean, okay, whatever. But the point is, is that we have these structures that are not serving us, and they're, and they're unevenly distributed. How do we actually begin to deal with that? Looking at the structures, the cultures, and you look, again, with the data. So if you look at the data and no woman's ever been in a place, you can imagine, it's not the woman that's the problem. It's we've designed a structure that's effectively excluding women. Uh, I'm gonna move on, but, Interesting factoid, I'll give you two things on this. I played sports, I'm gonna do some old sports analogy. There's a big debate if you're a serious baseball player, a baseball fan, was Babe Ruth the greatest player ever? And some people said he was good, but he only had to compete against other white players. Uh, so if he had, had to compete against black and Latino players, he'd have still been good, but would he have been the greatest? Here's another one. Basketball season is just about ending. I'm from the Bay Area, so I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, <laughs> I started school at the same time as a guy named Lou Alcindor. Anybody know who Lou Alcindor is? Yeah, so they called him also Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. When I started college uh, at Stanford in 1965, freshmen could not play varsity ball, and so uh, but what they would do is have the freshmen scrimmage the varsity, and the purpose was to humiliate the freshmen, to basically say, I don't care how good you were in high school, this is now college, and this is the real deal. And UCLA, which is where Kareem Abdul-Jabbar went as a freshman and throughout school, when this freshman team scrimmaged the varsity team, the varsity had won the national championship, so they were the best team, college team in the United States, and then they scrimmaged the freshmen. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar killed him. I mean, he's 7'2". He was bringing the ball down like a point guard, and he was dunking with his left hand. He was dunking with his left hand. He was dunking over his back. And, he was dunking. and the coaches looked at that. And this is meritocracy, right? Best player win. And they said, that ain't fair. So you know what they did? Does anyone know what they did? what they do? They eliminated the dunk. They said, OK, when he becomes a varsity player, we're not gonna allow the dunk in basketball. And so for the three years that he played varsity, you could not dunk in basketball. When he graduated, they brought the dunk back. <laughs> now the, this is like, we want a chance to win. It didn't work out so well because he developed something called the sky hook. Uh, <laughs> but the point is, part of having power, part of thinking about things, are making the rules of the game. And you make the rules of the game, if you're dominant, you make the rules of the game, so your group wins. Not because your group is the best, but because your group is the most powerful. So I'm gonna make rules of the game that says, my group wins. Uh, so this is what target universalism is about. It's basically saying, if the rules of the game exclude a whole people, there's something wrong with the rules, not something wrong with the people. Let's not just suggest the people to make those rules. Because if those people start winning, you know what? We're gonna come up with some new rules. 
What y'all doing here? Our rules are not working. Uh, so target universalism says, state what the universal is, state what the outcome is, where everyone, every group, can get to that universal. And then figure out what each group needs to get there. It would be different. So what short people need in terms of, excuse me, short people, but what short people need for lifting up luggage is going to be different than what tall people need. Uh, and, and it's not because they're tall or short, it's because of their relationship with the structure and the system. So you probably have seen this before. This is a, uh, a video that this made us up around. The early video had three people of different heights trying to look over the fence. And people criticized that. They're saying it's causing, calling too much attention to the people and not enough attention to the structure. And so then we think, how do we fix the people to adapt to a structure that's not designed to actually address them? And too often when we deal with issues, especially if the group that's marginalized also have a storyline that's a negative storyline. So you know, I work with uh, um, my brother's keeper, and, and, uh, which President Obama here from Chicago actually brought to the fore. But my concern, I think the concern, the work is great, but the majority of the work is how do we fix young black men and boys? It's not how do we fix the structures that demonize black men and boys. Uh, and so, again, the focus, I think, the emphasis is problematic. Uh, you know that you have a bad structure when only one person or a small group of people are getting there. So we, we want to do something which they call a policy link, um, equity by design. Equity by design is close to targeted universalism. You design structures to produce the outcomes you want. How do you know if you're achieving it or not? Because the outcomes you want are occurring. It's not inputs. We put a lot of money into the schools. We change the tender zone. We have um, new charter schools. We have this. Fine. What's the outcome? If the outcome is not what you want, then you haven't done it. And so target universalism is outcome driven. Uh, and then you look at where the different populations are. Again, state what the goal is. Now, um, one of the things that we've done, which we sort of subverted the real radical aspect of equity by making equity just about disparities. Uh, and so we say we want to close the gap between the favorite group and the less favorite group. And I worked in Dayton, Ohio, and in Dayton, Ohio, they had a goal of closing the gap between whites and people of color. And it was a 10-year initiative. I lived in Ohio for about 10 years. And after about 10 years, the gap had almost gone away. And blacks and Latinos had not improved at all, but whites had deteriorated. Uh, and they said, now you can, well, did you succeed? You closed the gap. He said, well, that's not exactly what we had in mind. <laughs> what did you have in mind? What did you have in mind? If your goal was to have everyone perform at a certain level, everyone have health care, everyone have access to insurance, state it. Don't state it just in relationship to each other. Now notice, if you get to that universal, the, the, the disparity has gone away. Uh, but you state the goal independent of what the normalized group have. And belonging is a big part of that. Uh, I only have a couple of minutes, but I can tell you, if you don't belong, you have negative health outcomes. It's the effect of smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. It's worse than, it, than dealing with diabetes. To say to people you don't belong, and we do this all different kind of ways. After the 9-11, uh, Muslim women in the United States, uh, their 
um, low birth weight for children went up almost double. Um, not because they couldn't get medical attention, but because we sent a message to them that you don't belong here. And the effect of that had huge consequences. This is a, a young woman at Texas, UT Austin. Um, blacks and Latino were not doing it well there. They spent, Texas spent millions of dollars trying to get them to do better. Uh, a professor finally called them together and said, how does it feel being here at UT Austin? Um, and all this stuff came out. Now, I, they tried to recruit me at UT Austin, and as they were taking me around, offering me money and stuff, they also took me by statues of Robert E. Lee and all these Confederate soldiers, and, and they said, don't pay attention to that. We fought on the side of the South of the Civil War, and I'm thinking, are you still fighting on the side of the South? Uh, um, and I knew my unconscious could not help but pay attention to it. They eventually took them down, but before they took them down, once they start talking to black and Latino children about students about what it was like being there, those students started performing almost as well as the white students. And they performed so well that some people thought they were cooking the books. It wasn't that the students didn't have the capacity, the intellectual capacity, it's the students did not feel they belong. Uh, and there were messages in the architecture, the messages in the content of the curriculum, messages in who the teachers were, that constantly sent a message that you don't belong. The same with bathrooms. So uh, we've just done a primer, uh, and you can go online uh, on target universalism. Again, target universalism is a way to actually say to all different groups, you belong, and we're willing to devote the resources, the culture, uh, the expression, and the money to say that you belong. Thank you. So now we move on to the conversation piece, the discussion between Professor Powell and Michael McAfee, who is the president and CEO of PolicyLink, which is a national research and action institute focused on advancing racial and economic equality. And they will be here to talk about um, operation, how you operationalize this work. And I have to say, this is sort of a full circle on some level, because when we kicked off sort of our focus on equity, Angela Glover-Blackwell, who was Michael's predecessor, was the woman who sort of helped us lay that ground and that, that line in the sand. So um, Michael's family, and we're glad he's back, and he's also one of my favorite people on the planet. So let me welcome both of them back onto the stage. Good afternoon. John, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's always a nice to be with you, Michael. What I thought we would do for the next 30 minutes is try to go, given what I saw in terms of how people, their level of experience with collective impact, is to try to start from conception and go to the more sophisticated by just being in a conversation with you about things that I've seen in my time and learned from others in the United States and abroad. And I would love to start with some of the things that you said around consciousness. Because I have found often, when I've gone out in collective impact efforts, if I say, what's your number? The people actually don't even have the same mental map around the number of people they're supposed to be serving. So that automatically pretends bad strategy right there. But even if I back up a little further, collective would suggest that there's some type of relationship. And I've heard you talk about being in a state of transformative solidarity. So if we start from the beginning of collective impact, if we were to operationalize this the right way based on some of the things you said to get to a place of belonging, what should that relationship embody? Well, that's a great question. Um, when you think about a relationship, first of all, it should be non-hierarchical. 
Mm -hmm. um, and, but also it should be real. So for example, I worked in New Orleans after Katrina, and there was this idea of we're gonna have the community come and talk to us about how to rebuild um, New Orleans. Uh, and literally they have the business community, they had the academic community, they had the political community, and then they had the people who lived in New Orleans. Now the business community, between meetings, they would have three or four people working on some strategy or some data, uh, writing up memos, uh, when, and then they came to the meeting, they literally had these fancy memos. It was good, it was useful, it was useful information. Um, processing the data, this is what it's gonna to cost to do this, this is, going to, this is how we're gonna rebuild the, the housing, this is how we're gonna rebuild the schools. And then they turned to the community and said, what do you think? And they'd be like, no, we don't want that. Where's your data? And in a sense, the community was not empowered to fully participate. The community knew that when they tore down all the public housing, they were gonna be screwed, but they didn't have the numbers. Uh, they knew when they turned all the schools to charter schools that they're gonna be screwed, but they didn't have the numbers. Uh, and so part of the thing in terms of for people to participate, um, and it's not, a lot of people have written about this, for people to participate in democracy, for people to participate in a meeting. Uh, so if I'm coming to a meeting and I don't have a staff, um, and, and maybe, you know, it's like, okay, the meeting's at six and I gotta get home to childcare at 6.30 and I gotta take a bus. I mean, it's all these structural things that are actually making sure that my presence in the meeting is even further marginalized. So if we're gonna say we're gonna have really participating as peers, non-hierarchical, what do I need to actually participate? What do you need to participate? I mean, it's, it's all kinds of things, right? It's like, we're gonna have the conversation in English. Oh, English is not my first language. I've, I've actually, I went to one event. This was actually great. I went to one event, uh, two, I got two events very quick. Went to one event where the primary discussion was in Spanish and they were translating into English and talking about feeling othered. It's like, because there's this whole conversation, you're just sitting there, you don't know what anybody's talking about, and then they, then they tell you, right? Uh, and and I, I realized we do that all the time. We have an English and Spanish, and we're not aware of how the Spanish speaker must feel. And then I went to a meeting uh, where the vast majority of the audience was deaf. Then I really felt othered. It's like, everybody's laughing, and the way they laugh, it's like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> And I'm just sitting there, right? It's like, what are they laughing about? You know? So, so part of it is to think about, and this is what I'm talking about in terms of structures. The structures are doing this work. It wasn't anyone being mean. It, and the resources, how do we actually make sure that people, if we want to have a real relationship with the community, how do we actually make sure they're in power? The one other thing I would say is that a lot of times we focus on the community. We focus on the community about the community, right? So it's like, we want to, we want to fix up the east side of Detroit, which is where I grew up. So I want people with the lived experience on the east side of Detroit to come and tell us how we should fix up the east side of Detroit. Not a, not a problem with that. But the east side of Detroit is surrounded by the rest of Detroit. We don't ask the people on the east side of Detroit how to fix up the whole Detroit, right? We say, your concern is your community. Our concern is the world. Right? A foundation, the same thing. They go to communities like, okay, what should we, we're gonna give you a grant. You're gonna do something with this grant. That's great. That's not a real partnership. A partnership would be, okay, tell us how we should do this grant, but then the community would turn around and say, okay, we have our grant, thank you. Now you have another, you know, 5% of your money you're giving away. We wanna to talk to you about that. You have 95% you're investing. We wanna to talk to you about that. We, wanna, we want everything on the table not just our stuff on the table to be chopped up, we want your stuff on the table to be chopped up as well. 
So John, you're right, this has been said before, and it seems like we keep missing the point when we start efforts. So I'm coming to a hypothesis often in my head that I don't know if we can get there if we keep centering whiteness. And I say that because when whiteness is centered, it means that the community takes a back seat. It means even how my own voice shows up needs to take a back seat. I often hear a lot of the community folks say, man, I can't say that around these folks. I want to get any money. So the community folks take a back seat. So we're already not in that relationship. So I, I've heard you talk about the construct of whiteness. How do you deal with that in the context of accelerating us to a better relationship to get better results? Right. Well, you know, the thing that's great about the concept of collective impact is that if we're, if we're serious about it, it's collective. It's like, so who's not in the collective? Who's too, too often in the collective? Whose voice is amplified? Whose voice is silenced? Um, and um, I think the construction of whiteness as an ideology is a very destructive concept. And I think without recentering whiteness as a concept, I think we have to sort of both, both give birth to a new concept of whiteness uh, and help people who are phenotypically white and associated with the concept of whiteness leave some of that behind. Uh, and it's, it's, we're in an interesting place in the country now. So if you look at data in terms of white attitudes, they, they used to be like white attitudes and then people of color. What you now see is a camel's back. You see a hump. You see white attitudes that are even more vitriolic toward equality and toward participation. Uh, and these people oftentimes are described as Trump voters. And then you see, uh, I'm, just, I'm just being real, you know, uh, some of my best friends didn't vote for Trump. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then you see white folks who are, for the first time in, in the US history, we have the largest number of white people in the United States supporting reparation, yeah. uh, supporting affirmative action. So we actually have this, uh, so in a sense to me, these are white folks who are struggling against whiteness. Uh, and I think we need to help them without recentering that effort. Uh, I think we need to center people who are most marginal, but you don't want to be exclusive. And yes, I think we, what it means to be white has already changed because of President Trump. It's changed in a negative way. And we need to sort of think about how will we change it in a positive, inclusive way. And, it'll be, and, like, and to your point, if we don't do that, if, and we, we saw this right after the election, when even friends and colleagues of mine at Berkeley were like, we gotta really understand the Trump voters. You know, like, let's take all our money that we're investing in the urban areas and go out to the rural areas to help the Trump voters feel better. And you know, and I really do believe in bridging. I really do believe in a, everybody being included. But it's like, no, that's not, that's not the strategy. That's not target universalism. That's just whack. Uh, <laughs> So, so I think that we have to actually be willing to talk about whiteness as a construct and why that construct is so destructive without conflating it with people who are phenotypically white. And, and, and for the, some of those people will, who want to shed that, and when they shed it, they have to be something they step into. You can't just be nothing. You can't just be an individual. So how do we actually give birth to a society where every group matters? Um, and... Um, just while I'm saying that, you know, that one of the ways this is expressed in terms of black life matters. And so you heard the meme, black life matters, and then people saying, what about white lives? What about blue lives? Uh, and, I, and I say, yes, they matter. But as far as I know, and I 
look at this data a lot, there hasn't been one white person shot by police who said, I was shot because I was white. You know, I was shot, yeah, I shouldn't have been, I don't want like no one getting me shot, but no one claims I was shot because I was white. There are people who said I'm shot because I'm black. There are people who say I'm shot because I'm gay. There are people who say I'm shot because I'm an immigrant. That's what we're talking about. When one's uh, attributes, we call it hate crime. So if you beat up somebody, it's a crime. If you beat up someone because of their religion, it's a different crime. So we conflate those things. So, uh, so we have to create a bridge and a story. Uh, and we have to do that. We have to be the spearhead of that. Um, and then also demand the resources. So I think that we will have a different kind of whiteness in the country. Um, it shouldn't be centered. If it's centered, it's a good chance it's a very similar to the existing kind of whiteness. But if we can have a whiteness that's not centered, uh, um, then we actually can have a real United States. Then we can have a world. If we don't have, uh, if we can't get beyond that, we're in trouble. I mean, serious trouble. And you talk about, as we're talking about the consciousness to do this work, you talk about seeing each other. You talk about seeing with the heart and soul. So if leaders are to take up this work with a different consciousness and we're actually able to see each other, how do you operationalize seeing with the heart and soul? Well, you know, then this is a South African word, sababanu, which basically means I see you. And the translate, another way of saying it is the God in me sees the God in you. Uh, so that's part of it. It's, it's part of it is to see what I was trying to begin to do in the presentation to basically say um, we don't notice oftentimes the absence of a marginalized people, right? You know, you can have a, a meeting and it's like it's all white and we don't notice it. Uh, we're getting better at that. Or it's all 56 million people in the United States are disabled. Where are they? Where are they? We don't notice that they're absent. We notice when they show up, right? Someone shows up in a wheelchair. Oh, I noticed the person has a wheelchair. How are they going to get up on stage? I don't know. No one thought of that. Uh, so part of it is to actually become more acutely aware of all of us. Uh, Ten years ago, we wouldn't have noticed that we're on Native American land and that no Native Americans present. Uh, um, you know, uh, 20 years ago, we wouldn't notice that there's such a thing as that the Washington Redskins, uh, you know, are not about people who are red skinned. It's about billionaires. Um, uh, so part of it is that we have to learn to notice and learn to notice in a way, and we learn to notice in part by becoming better, but also being in relationship with each other. Uh, the biggest way to move forward is to actually both focus on the culture and structures, but also be in relationship with each other. Uh, unfortunately, we're not in relationship with each other. Or when we are in relationship with each other, it's hierarchical. It's like, I'm the boss, you work for me. Well, that's not, you know, it's like, I'm the slave master, you work for me. That's not the kind of, that's not a relationship. I'm the abusive husband, and you, you know, you work for me. So can we have a relationship where we don't work for each other? Can we have a relationship where we work together? Can we have a, and can we have a shared vision of the world? Uh, and then how to, how to operationalize that? And again, since we don't see each other, how do we notice that the relationship is problematic when we don't even see each other? Here's one indication. Look at the distribution of resources. 2053, the projection is, based on current trends, the black community will have zero wealth. Zero. Some people say that's too optimistic, that the black community in 2053 will have negative wealth. 
Well, something's wrong with that. And, and I, I would say, in that structure where black people have zero wealth, it's hard to have a healthy relationship. Uh, just like going to a meeting where everybody's prepared, everyone has their memos, everyone has their researchers, and you showing up, you know, it's like disruptive. It's like demanding something. It's like, where's your research? I don't have any research. I just have demands. Well, that's already creating this funny thing. So I think that uh, people who are marginalized have to be centered. They have to be resourced. They have to be involved in the design. Uh, and we should be talking about not only in the design of how they get brought in, but the design of how the dominant culture gets brought in. Um, uh, and how do we know we're succeeding? Because the outcomes start to change, because the, the data starts to change, because the stories start to change, because people present start to change. And they become present, not just in terms of, when my kids were going to go to school, they, they're like trying to look at schools where uh, it's diverse. And I say, look more deeply. I mean, my son was going to go to the University of Chicago at one point because he was interested in economics. And they said they had a diverse population. And I'm not to knock on, this is my son is 39, so this is a while ago. Uh, their diverse population were white people, and this is not an exaggeration, Koreans for Christ was one of the biggest groups. Koreans for Christ. And it's like, well, you know, I'm not against Koreans. I'm not against people being for Christ. Uh, but that's not the diversity you're talking about. You know, how many black people do they have? Three. You know, so, uh, so I'm saying is that the numbers, your point, the numbers matter. And we need to set goals that are very deliberate. Uh, we need to talk about how do we actually not just redistribute resources and wealth, because when we bring everybody in, we reproduce the wealth. We create wealth. Uh, and when we leave people out, we leave a lot of stuff on the table. Um, so I think just the intentionality of it, and once you have the intentionality of it, uh, and, and look at the structures that are working against you, it, it takes your attention to that, uh, but also resource people and communities to actually be real, uh, and then also put your stuff on the table. So again, you know, you could say Ford Foundation, um, you're giving stuff away, Last thing on this. Large foundations, they go through these community planning. You know, it's like, we're doing strategic planning. We're closing our doors for two years. We're going to figure out what to do. It's like, really? <laughs> uh, you know, and you now you have this book, Winner Takes All and Decolonizing Wealth. Uh, and, and, and it's not, generally speaking, when they do that, they don't ask the community what they should do. They say, we're going to, we'll get back to you in two years. Hopefully, you're still around. Uh, and then we're going to tell you what we're going to do. Uh, and um, so I think that just the whole process has to be different. And the way you think of, we think about collective impact, how do we make sure that everybody's voice is heard, which means amplifying some voices, resourcing some voices, and not just for, quote unquote, the marginal issues, like, you know, um, and not marginal in the sense that they're unimportant, uh, but when we think about climate change, The groups who care most about climate change in the United States, who are the two groups that care most about climate change in the United States? Anyone? Anyone? Okay. Native Americans, Latinos. Those two groups consistently poll higher than whites in terms of the environment. And yet, when you go to most environmental meetings, no Native Americans, no Latinos. And it's like, how do we get the Latinos to care about 
you know. <laughs> anyway. So you, yeah. so you've given us some ways to raise our consciousnesses about how we engage in being in relationship. And so let's move to some of the tensions that are held when we're in relationship. I'm often frustrated because I feel like we conflate charity with transformative work. And to me, collective impact should be about freeing ourselves from these oppressive structures so you don't need charity. That's my point of view. Um, but I often find that that's the aspiration in the room, that folks actually wanted to get there. But they start with a program that never is going to get there. And we back away from race, et cetera. So how do we hold the tension of addressing the immediate human needs that are real? And beginning to orient ourselves to what I think is the real reason why you need collective action, which is to dismantle these structures of oppression. So how do we get that centered in our conversation and in our practice? Because often the data doesn't lead us there, or if it leads us there, people choose not to go there. And the last thing I'll say on this is, how do we create the urgency around it so that we're not spending our time trying to make folks who actually aren't experiencing the pain comfortable. Because if we're crafting strategy based on that, it's going to take us more than 20 damn years to get there. <laughs> right? And so we often end up moving into the strategy conversation with, and with the data in ways that don't get to the structural things that, are, that we're trying to address programmatically. Right. No, I think that's right. And I, I guess I'll just add to what you said in terms of you, you said it already. Someone just lifted up. And that is, um, the structures that are designed now are not designed to produce equity. They're not designed to produce racial justice. Uh, and we can tweak those structures, uh, and we can accommodate them by charity. It's like, OK. And we, we can also accommodate them by heroes or sheroes. It's like, you know, we lifted this person up out of the ghetto, and, and they, they was born with you know, no place to sleep and nothing. And, uh, and look, they became Jesus. Uh, <laughs> so anybody can become Jesus. Uh, but the point is, is that uh, what we do is we say, literally, millions of people are, are suffering, and we're going to rescue five. That's what this structure is. Uh, and then we celebrate these five. So we can keep tweaking that structure, or we can also, while we actually tweak that structure, because the immediate matters, we can say, how do we build a new structure? Uh, and we can't build a new structure unless all of us are involved. So that's one. Two, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a thing of power. Uh, if, we, if we come together in terms of collective impact, how do we, it's not coming with our hat in hand saying, it would be nice if you participate in this. It's like, no, we're going to do this. And the economy is not going to work if you don't do this. Or the, you know, we need to be able to, to have some skin in the game and, and say to everyone that this is what we're doing. We are, we are asking you to join with us to build uh, an inclusive, equitable, belonging future. And if not, you know, uh, then sometimes we say we're not buying your products. When, uh, was it North Carolina said, you know, they weren't going to do the thing with um, uh, gender neutral bathrooms, uh, in part because of the sports teams and others, it's like, boycott, they lost millions of dollars. And those people who didn't care to help people who were being abused, it's like they did care about the millions of dollars. So we also have to look for leverage points. Uh, we need to do the research. We need to sort of build bridges. But we also need to be able to think about power. 
How do we actually have power to make this happen? And then the final thing is I, I'll say is that there's always going to be a middle, but someone has to be beyond the middle. So someone has to be saying it, right? Because if you can't say it, you can't do it. Um, so a lot of times when we started talking about race, it's like, do we have to talk about race? Well, what would you like to talk about? Uh, you know, those Tigers, really great team, right? You know, so part of it is, is the world is changing. That's the good news and bad news. It's going to create a lot of dislocation, a lot of uncomfort, a lot of discomfort. The good news is that discomfort is going to be distributed almost across the entire globe. Uh, so, you know, the goal is not to get people back to being comfortable. The goal is to get people to being, you know, relatively safe, not completely safe, and bold. Because what's needed, I oftentimes say this, you know, we are really facing some crisis. The good news is, in the long run, we'll be okay. The bad news is, we don't have a long run. Uh, so, uh, and I'm not for, you know, getting in people's face or talk, you know, what I call breaking or, you know, making white people, other people feel bad, but I am into getting something done. And if someone's in the way, it's like, okay, let's talk. And if you don't talk, then we go around you or through you, but we got to get it done. Uh, it's not optional. Um, and it's not simply about black people, about Latinos, about gay people. It's about the whole, it's about all of us. Uh, and I say, include white people in that. Uh, so when we talk about people of color, I say people of color progress, but white people as well. But it's a new world where they are not in control. We all participate. Uh, and we start that right now. We start uh, doing that now. We start investing in that now. We start planning for that now. Uh, and some people will get on board right away. Some people will fight you. And some people will stay on the sideline and say, I'm going to see what's going to happen. Uh, but we don't have to wait for them. We start now. If we see the urgency, then we act urgently. And John, in, in acting urgently, what type of protection mechanisms can you put in place for folks who are starting to express their power but don't have an, enough power relationships yet to survive it, to survive the inherent conflict that is necessary to get to the results you want? You know, there's a whole thing of network theory, which is um, uh, basically resiliency is networks. Uh, Personal resiliency is almost an oxymoron. Resiliency is networks. And if you think about it, when something bad happens to you, or even something good, but certainly when something bad happens to you, you look for someone to talk to. Uh, I have a thing, I say, who do you call? Now think about this. You're a young man. You're going down the street. It's kind of dark. Uh, someone's following you in a car. You're worried. Uh, who am I talking about? All right, yeah, Trayvon. Trayvon Martin, his network, who does he call? He calls his girlfriend. What can his girlfriend do? Now, you're a young man, you're driving in your car, you see someone looking suspicious in your neighborhood, uh, you have a girlfriend, but who do you call? Who am I talking about? Mark Zimmerman, who does he call? He calls the police. He calls the police. So the police is in this network. And so part of the thing is that we have to have, make sure that folks doing the work don't have what I call flat networks. So when Trayvon Martin gets in trouble, look, I did, I did a disparate, I did a racial profiling uh, report for Minneapolis-St. Paul. 
right? So I knew that some police were going to be pissed, even before they saw the report. They're pissed that I'm doing the report. And the chief of police knew it as well. So he said, John, here's my personal phone number. Here's my cell number. You can call 24-7. You get stopped, call me. Uh, and to your point, he's saying, yeah, you, you step out there, there's a risk. You need a network. And so part of helping people, part of supporting people, is helping to create those networks. And marginalized communities oftentimes don't have those networks. They call each other. And while that's helpful, it doesn't, you know, if I'm, if I'm getting stopped by the police and I call some, my brother, it's like, he can't do anything. Uh, if I call the chief of police, it makes a big difference. If I call a judge, it makes a big difference. So part of the thing is that we can be in relationship with people who are quote unquote on the front line. Uh, so they say, oh, you know Michael? Huh, okay, how, you, how do you know Michael? You know, Michael doesn't live in this neighborhood. Uh, so, we, so part of it is to actually, uh, I work with some computer companies and they, a lot of them bring in women and people of color and they leave after about five minutes. Uh, you know, and, they re and the, the companies say, what's going on? We bring them in, but we can't keep them. I said, they don't have a network. They don't have critical mass. They don't have a flat network or a hierarchical network, and they need both. And so what some of them have started doing is helping to create those networks. Uh, and they say, okay, I got you, you got to do the work, but I got your back. Um, so I think that um, when we know what the problem is, I think, I think a problem is uh, uh, solutions that haven't been realized. Uh, so, you know, I'm talking to uh, a young man the other day, actually today, and he called up and it's like, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. I said, you've done a beautiful analysis of the problem. What's the solution? <laughs> Call me back. <laughs> <laughs> so we know people are out there s s struggling by themselves. We know that uh, there's a suicide rate that's too high among activists. We should be stepping into that. We don't have to wait. We know that. I mean, it's part of it's simple. Here's, here's a pass. Once a month, go to a spa. Uh, you know, come to my house. You know, do something that gives you a break. Because stress is not the problem. It's the failure to have de-stressors. So some communities, it's not that they just have stress. They have no de-stressors. They can never take a break. Well, we can, we can change that. Um, well, John, before we go to questions, if you were to think about collective impact in its evolution and you were to say, what's the work for our generation related to collective impact, what would you say? Um, well, I would say three things. I would say set some immediate and long-term goals. Uh, and that are, some of it should be edgy, not all of it, but some of it needs to be edgy. Two, to really make sure that you're in relationship, that your relationships are really broad. You know, you're not just uh, uh, engaging with people who are like yourself. And, you, and like Sherry said, you know, you're starting to do more of that. But starting to do it oftentimes, and I'm not close enough to know how you're doing it, but oftentimes when we bring in people of color, or bring in women, uh, it's even then they're still on the margin. They don't have real power. And they certainly don't have the power to restructure our organization. That's what I talked about in terms of belonging. They, they, they get to come to our meetings and our board, but it's still our meetings and our board. Uh, they don't have real control over overall resources. Uh, and so uh, I would say start to shift that. Um, and then third, I would say, I think there are a lot of people and a lot of efforts around the country linking those up. Uh, um, 
in this last election, there was a big fight about how the people should spend their money in terms of getting people out to vote. And the saying that I had is that we vote, we win. That's simple. We vote, we win. Who's, who are the we? People of color, young people. We vote, we win. There, and some people were saying, no, we have to get the rural Trump voters to switch sides. And I said, I'm not against that, but I wouldn't center that. Uh, I wouldn't spend all my money, uh, and I wouldn't spend all your money doing that. Uh, and I'm saying, if we vote, we win. And if you know in Alabama, right, where Doug Jones won, um, he won, he got 29% of the white vote. Uh, he won. How did he win? Uh, black women. Uh, so we did an analysis, and we, and we do this as, you know, sort of, and again, not just not to the center the most recalcian white person. You know, it's like we gotta, we gotta convince the most recalcian white person to get on board. Again, I'm not saying leave them out, but don't center them. We estimated that you would need 30% of the white votes to win. Only got 29%. We won because, and we thought you'd get 80 to 90% of the black vote. And the black people had to vote, right? Not just 80% of those who vote, you had to have a certain percentage to vote. Uh, we thought 80 90%. 98% of the black women who voted, voted. We didn't, that was higher than we expected. That was higher, just to give you guys a sense of this, that was higher when President Obama was on the ticket. So I'm saying there's something out there, there's some power, power out there. Nobody's organizing, nobody's resourcing it. Two months before the election, they were walking around with hat in hand trying to raise money because people were sort of ignoring them. It's like, no, we gotta, we gotta get the money to the Trump voters. I'm saying, really? Uh, so part of it is that we have a constituency, they need resources, and they're ready. And, and I'm not saying they, they, don't, they, they need a number of things, but they are ready. So how do we invest in them? How do we follow them? How do we, you know, uh, I mean, if, if I was a political whatever, if I was the, one of the, you know, 800 billionaires in America, I'd be looking and say, I want to meet as many black women as I can. <laughs> If America's going to be saved, it's going to be saved by black women. And that's not a, that's not a hyperbolic statement. Uh, here's a group somehow it's organized itself, and they're trying to save us, but we keep ignoring them. You know, so anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Is there a question or two? The mics will come to you. Is there a question? It's on your mind. Got one right up front. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, thanks, um, Steve Patrick with the Aspen Institute. And John, I was going to ask you, and Michael, maybe you'll respond to this as well, to talk about what we talked a little bit about before you went back up stage, which is um, the structural barriers in the democracy that are really focused on othering. So just like two quick examples. Um, after the Supreme Court uh, loosened laws around the vote, um, a number of community, a number of states closed polls in African-American communities, North Carolina, Georgia. Um, that's one example. A second is um, the recent, you know, the people vote in Florida uh, to re-enfranchise over a million formerly incarcerated folks who have paid their dues and who didn't have the vote. 
the legislature in Florida decided to create a set of structures, basically a poll tax, uh, where um, you know those folks who now have the vote can't vote if they have any fines or fees, which if you know about the legal system, most of them got fines and fees that they haven't been able to pay. And so these structures are seem very intentional. Um, you brought up um, uh, even just the electoral college structure uh, where lots of pr recent presidents have been elected without winning the popular vote. Is there a, a way that we, as we work on our community change and 68% of us are focused on youth and education, is there a way we can participate more in really creating more of a belonging in our democracy yeah. and the structures within it? That's, that's the big question yeah. for both of you. And, and I think we have to, I think we have to. And, and I think it happens at different levels. So part of it is telling different stories. Um, different stories about race, different stories about class, different stories about who belongs. Um, and I mean, when 9-11 happened, I don't know where you were, when 9-11 happened, uh, President Bush said two things. He said, we're gonna have a war, and we're gonna find those terrorists wherever they are, uh, and we're gonna kill them, right? And he also said, go shop. Uh, be a good American and go spend some money shop. Uh, when the terrorist attack happened in New Zealand, the Prime Minister there said, these people are us. They are we. Uh, she started talking about love. She started talking about being, she started, started talking about a larger we. Uh, so one, Bush thing was a breaking thing, right? It's like the Muslims are bad. We gotta go search them out uh, under every rock and destroy them. We have our ships heading to the Gulf right now. Uh, the head of New Zealand said, love. So we need better stories. We need bridging stories. Uh, we also need bridging practices. Um, so I don't know if this will work. So here's one thing. I think clearly we have to ch challenge those structural things. And the, the right wing, the Republicans who have lost their soul, uh, hopefully uh, there are no Republicans here without a soul. Uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not categorically Democratic or Republican, but the Republicans have become uh, a party of white supremacy. This is straight up, that's what they're doing. Uh, but you can imagine someone saying, we need to change that. We're gonna change it. But in the meantime, as a billionaire, I'm paying all the fines. You know, I don't know how much they are, but I'm just gonna make, let's say they're $200 million. I'm paying all the fines in Florida, right? That's a prophylactic, that's a transactional because the structure is still there. But it's actually sending a powerful message, just saying, I have some skin in the game. And yes, I'm Michael Bloomberg, whom I've been in relationship with, he cares about these issues. It's not, you know what? Sell one of your yachts. Uh, I mean, we could, so we could do, that would be a bridging practice of saying, I, as a billionaire in New York, have some skin in the game in terms of what happens to black, Latino, and poor whites in Florida. And then help people understand why that's actually a poll tax. Uh, so you have to do both. You have to sort of make the intervention uh, but you also have to tell a story and give people a, a different pathway. Perfect. Let's take one more question before we close out. Um, first of all, I want to say it's awesome that you're here. I'm also an alumni of Stanford University, but I graduated many years after you. <laughs> um, so it's an honor to see. Rub it in. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> 
Um, but first and foremost, I think it's an honor to see a black Stanford alumni sitting on the stage who's done such amazing work. So I do want to say, shout that out. Thank you. Um, um, but my question is for um, young black millennials today is that often the emphasis is that we get elected into these positions of power, but I think that's not really the battle because we're just electing ourselves into a structure that was set up to be inequitable to begin with. And you talked about dismantling that system and creating a new system at this um, simultaneously. So I guess, what is your message to those who are coming behind you who are trying to dismantle that system and not just trying to get into the same positions of power that per oppress us? That's a great question. It's a disturbing question because I don't know if you've seen the data. 60% uh, of millennials, millennials think that um, in the next, I think it's the next five to 10 years, they'll be millionaires. Uh, <laughs> so that kind of dampens uh, their interest in changing the system. They believe they're gonna win based on this system. 60%, uh, uh, it's like, where'd you learn math? I mean, <laughs> it's like 80% of the people think they're above average, uh, which is actually pretty accurate. About 80% of people think they're above average. It's like, ooh. Uh, <laughs> so part of it is that even if you are a millionaire, uh, what do you do? And, and I think part of it is, is actually having a relationship. Let me just give you one concrete example uh, that affects millennials right now. And I've talked to a few of them about this. What we've done is created a, a, a kind of scarcity. So it's like, I win, you lose. Uh, and so everybody's sort of like trying to figure out how I win. And I don't care if you lose. In fact, it's better if you lose because that's the way I win. Can we actually imagine something different? where our winning actually is together, where we actually support each other, where we all really belong. And there's some expressions of that that's happening too. But let me just give you one. So some of you may know there's a case at Harvard now where Asian uh, uh, young people are suing um, against basically affirmative action, saying um, that, that more of them should be at Harvard. And if they weren't having a quota, uh, there would, there would be more Asians at Harvard and probably fewer blacks and fewer Latinos, and that's meritorious. And the, the argument is that their numbers are really high, uh, near perfect scores on SAT scores, near four point or even four point plus, and they could do, and the only reason they're not at Harvard is because Harvard has a, a quota on Asians. And, uh, and they have a nice story around that. But it's also creating a huge fraction within the millennial community between blacks, Asians, and, and Latinos. And I'm saying, why isn't someone suing Harvard and Berkeley and Michigan and UCLA saying, okay, we know there's a thousand students who could thrive at those schools, but we only have 10 slots. So let's sue to increase the number of seats to a thousand, so that every student who's capable of doing the work can go to those schools. Instead, we keep this false artificial scarcity and said, you guys fight it out among yourselves. We leave the structure in place. And so the only fight becomes in the structure where based on some criteria, 90% of those or uh, 990 of you are gonna lose. The question then becomes which of those of you? That system is a destructive system, regardless to who gets in Harvard and who gets out. I would argue, and I think someone can make the argument, if we don't change that system, everyone loses. So you can go to Harvard, you can be President of the United States, you can be head of General Motors. If you could have a society where we don't have what Robert Putnam talks about as uh, social capital, 
which is another way of talking about bonding, which where we don't, if we don't trust each other, if we don't care for each other, everybody loses. And if you look at something like the spirit level, when they look at the greater inequality in a country, the more negative the health outcomes are for everybody. So this corrosive society, this white society of, of, of dominance, is something that hurts everybody. Not everybody the same, uh, but can we actually imagine something different? Uh, and I think if we can, we should empower breaking, bridging stories, bridging practices, bridging examples, uh, where everybody belongs. That's what we should really be lifting up, and that's what we really should be empowering. Uh, and I think without saying exactly how that, it's like equity. Again, equity is not housing or schools. It's a way of looking at the world. And the same is true of belonging and, and targeting universalism. Will you join me in thanking John? Thank you, brother. It's a pleasure, brother. Thank you. And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you're interested in learning more about what Professor Powell discussed in his talk, including targeted universalism, we've included information in the footnotes for this episode. You might have also noticed Professor Powell discussing the planned renaming of the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. Since this talk, they have transitioned their name to the Othering and Belonging Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. The intro music for this episode was composed by Raphael Crooks, and the outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. Please stay tuned for our next episode, and if you're looking for more resources, discussions, and news related to Collective Impact, please visit our online community at collectiveimpactforum.org. And for those interested in joining us for our next in-person learning event, Registration is now open for our 2020 Collective Impact Convening that will be in Minneapolis this May 6th through 8th, 2020. Thanks for listening, and until next time.